We're going to be in Mark chapter 2 this morning. And one of the things, as you're turning there, if you're, if you're in one of the house Bibles, uh, if you're in the one with the white cover, you're going to be on page 578. If you're in the one with the blue cover, you're in 489. And if you are not in one of those, you're on your own. Sorry. Jesus, over and over again in the Gospels, reveals that our primary problem is not that we have the wrong answer, but that we keep asking the wrong questions. And that having the right answer to the wrong question makes us wrong. So, first and foremost, the question that we have to ask, the most important and first question that we need to ask is, who is Jesus? Jesus tells the woman at the well, if you knew who you were talking to right now, you'd be asking way better questions. You'd be asking for way bigger stuff. You'd be asking for eternal things, not asking me how I'm going to get a cup of water for you out of the well without a bucket. We, like the, so many of the, the powerful and the comfortable in Jesus' time, tend to critique Jesus and question Jesus. Right? We think, isn't, isn't my way of doing things better or more efficient or make more sense? He doesn't really intend for us to obey that literally, does he? Or, or surely he doesn't understand that this doesn't make sense in our culture, otherwise he wouldn't have said that. Right? But if we are able to, to start by answering the question, who is Jesus, and arrive on the correct answer, then that changes all of our questions. I love the way A.W. Tozer put this. He said, Our question is about Christ himself, and all other religious questions are reduced to what do you think of Jesus and what are you going to do about him? Unless this is fully addressed, nothing else really matters. And that question doesn't just apply to our first experience with Jesus or a moment of decision. That is the question that we have to ask. Who is Jesus and what am I going to do about him? We have to ask that question day after day, moment to moment. In this circumstance, in this relationship, in this situation, who is Jesus and what am I going to do with him in this? And it's a, big, it's a big deal. We have to figure out who he is and, and, and helpful advice giver and good teacher and humanitarian grandfatherly buddy. These are not options that he has allowed for us to take with him. He's eliminated most of the options because right? he claimed to be one with God. He claimed to exist before Abraham existed, which would put him at least a thousand years old. At the time, he claimed that he was the only means to gain access to God. He claimed to be the very image and voice of God. He claimed that he would be unjustly condemned, murdered, and then three days later would come back from the dead. So he is either bananas, and everything that he said should be quickly and easily dismissed as lunacy. Or he is intentionally and epically manipulative and is a monster and should not be considered a good teacher and we should not take his advice. Or he is exactly who he said he was. 
And a strong argument against the liar-lunatic option is the fact that he came back from the dead, which cracked con men typically do not do. So we have this guy who says all of these huge statements about who he is, and that he's going to affirm that all of that is true by the fact that he is going to resurrect from the dead, which he then does. So we're left with Colossians, which says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, whether rulers or dominions or, or, or thrones or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, hallelujah, amen to that. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile or bring back into right relationship all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is Jesus. And if I truly believe that he is who he says he is, that changes all of my questions. So in Mark chapter 2, here's, here's what we have. It says, One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. They were hungry, and so as they're walking, they're plucking little heads of grain, and they're, and they're eating it. So then the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you ever read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with them, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and he ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. And also he gave it to those who were with them. And he said to them, the Sabbath was not made for man, or rather the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man, talking about himself, is Lord even of the Sabbath. It is not hyperbole to say that I have agonized over this message. I have wrestled with the Word. I have wrestled with new commentaries, with 200-year-old commentaries, with 1,200-year-old rabbinical writings. I have harassed every staff member in this church trying to figure out what to communicate this weekend because I have been challenged by what I have felt like is not what anyone would call a robust theology of Sabbath. That's not something we spend a lot of time talking about. And, and, and as I am wrestling with that and I'm trying to figure out how do I communicate all of these things to you guys in a way that is actually helpful and, and beneficial, and I'm asking God for wisdom, which he asks us, he tells us to do in James. He says, does anyone lacks wisdom? Let him ask of God who, who gives freely and, 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 and delights to answer our questions. And as I'm asking him for wisdom and I'm reading over this passage again, I suddenly realize, wait a minute, the whole point of this passage is Jesus telling them, you are so focused on the Sabbath rules that you're missing the point. So maybe I shouldn't come here today and tell you all about Sabbath rules, because that feels like the definition of irony. Irony. 
You can tell from a plain reading of the Gospels. You don't have to know Jewish history or Jewish law or, or, or anything about history itself. Just a plain reading of the Gospels, you can see that Jesus is intensely frustrated and has a major problem with all of the additional rules that people have made up in the name of following God. We'll, we'll get into this at length when we get to Mark chapter 7, but I think right now it'll, it'll, it's helpful to just take two minutes on unpacking just to get a little bit of the context. The, the rabbis with the, with the absolute best of intentions, out of a desire to obey what, what, are, what are sometimes kind of vague laws of God, created uh, a, a set of rules to protect people from, from breaking those laws. And, and at the time, it wasn't a set set of rules. Actually, at the time of Jesus, there was intense debate going on about what all of these rules should look like. But, but what they ended up with is, is a word, and I'm not even going to waste anyone's time by trying to pronounce the Hebrew word, because I will butcher it and no one will remember it anyway, so it's not worth the embarrassment. But in English, it means the separation. And, and to this day, they will, they'll refer to it as the fence. So the idea is, is because we don't want to break this law, what are the things that might tempt us or put us in a position where we would break this law? And let's make a rule against that. For example, if it is against the Torah to, to work on the Sabbath, let's, let's make a rule that you can't pick up a hammer because then that will prevent anyone from accidentally breaking the rule of not working on the Sabbath. Because you know how it goes. You pick up a hammer, you're walking down the hall, you see a nail sticking out a little too far, you go, that will not do. Tap, 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 boom, you just profane the Sabbath. We don't want that to happen to you, so no picking up of hammers or pencils or anything else that you might use as an implement to do work just so that you can protect yourself. And so they, they continue to take a step back and are like, well, but, but then picking up a hammer, you might, you know, so how do we, what rule can we set up to make sure that you don't pick up a hammer? Because then that might, then, then, then that leads the, and it kind of, we, when we end up in this line of thinking of how do we get a rule to protect us from the rule to protect us from that rule so that we don't break the main thing, it, it becomes the religious version of if you give a mouse a cookie. Right? Where it's just in this thing, and it's just now this thing, and now all of a sudden you're like, how did we even get here? You're like, well, you shouldn't have given him the cookie in the first place. <laughs> so this is, and, and we laugh about that, but, but let's, let's, be, let's be cautious that we're not laughing at what they do. It's easy to be condescending towards other people's religious beliefs that we don't understand when the point of this is that we do the exact same thing. We, we look at what it says in the Word, or perhaps we don't, maybe we just assume what it says in the Word, and then we come up with our way of obeying that thing, and then this becomes the hill that we're willing to die on. So that is the heart that we need to guard ourselves from. The problem with their fence is that it grew so high and so thick, you couldn't even see over it. Anymore, and, and so much time went into maintaining and monitoring the fence that they forgot what the fence was protecting in the first place and were even willing to sacrifice the thing that the fence was supposed to be protecting over the sake of the fence. They and we are experts at missing the point. Knowing the right way to obey something that God never commanded you to do is not obeying God as Jesus points out over and over again. 
So as his disciples are walking through the field and they're hungry and they're, and they're picking the grain and they're separating the grain and they, they eat it, what is happening is the Pharisees who are following them around looking for a reason to accuse Jesus are losing their marbles because they see this happening. And, and according to, they're not breaking Torah law, they're violating the fence. So the fence has broken down. It says, do not work. Do not harvest your fields on Sabbath. And so they broke that down to say, okay, so what all is involved in harvesting? Well, there's, there is, there's reaping and then there's threshing and then there's winnowing and then they define what all those things are and they applied those to all the things. So as the disciples are walking through and the Pharisees are watching them, they're seeing a guy and they go, hey, wait a minute, he just picked a head of grain. He is harvesting. He just reaped from that field. And then, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, he's threshing. He's threshing right now. He just winnowed. Oh my word, he just ate it. He just prepared a meal. He has violated all of these sabbatical rules. And, he, and, and the sabbatical rules. And he comes, they come to Jesus and say, what, what are you, do you not see what's happening? The reality is in Exodus, it says one of the purposes of not harvesting on the Sabbath on the Sabbath day or the Sabbath year was so that the poor and the foreigners in your midst would be able to come and eat from your fields. So they're doing the reason, the thing that the reason, one of the reasons the Sabbath was created for. So not only are they not violating it, they're, they're fulfilling it in a sense. But Jesus doesn't even say anything about that, did he? He just skips their question entirely. He totally ignores their question and gives them an example of when David broke what was explicitly Torah law. So he's like, you're bummed at these guys for breaking your rules. How about that time when David broke mine? And what, and then, okay, I'm going to take 30 seconds just because I think this is so cool. This doesn't help you. It does, it's not necessary to understand that this passage here, I just want to brag for 30 seconds on how awesome our Jesus is. This example is so amazing on so many levels because what Jesus does here is he, he, he not only gives this example, reminds them of the time when the ceremonial law was broken and God was okay with it, but he also reminds them of the bread of the presence itself, which is a meal that is baked on the Sabbath day. The very thing that they're bummed that the disciples are doing. How awesome is that? Dude. Jesus is so good. It's the verbal kung fu, man. You can't beat this guy. It's so, he's so, he's so amazing. He's so amazing. He points, he points out in this passage, and then it's expanded on the book of Hebrews if it's something that interests you, but he points out the ceremonial law is is a shadow of something bigger. It's pointing to something so much bigger. It's like a photograph. It, it represents, but it is not the real. I, I am the Lord over the shadow. I am bigger, so much bigger than this ceremonial act that is representing something so much bigger. And all throughout the Old Testament, you get this picture. The reason a Sabbath was given to them as a gift was to, first of all, to remind them of the ultimate purpose of all creation, and that is to find its rest in glorifying and enjoying God forever. 
to remind them of the salvation that they could not purchase for themselves, but that was given for them and provided for them, to celebrate in thankfulness for all of his provision, to take a break from pursuing material things and devote intentional time to pursuing eternal things, namely God as their ultimate treasure and as a means to provide for those who cannot provide for themselves. All of those are explicitly mentioned throughout the Old Testament as reasons for the Sabbath. But Jesus' whole point in this interaction is debating minor points of the Sabbath is fruitless because you don't know who I am. You don't understand who you're talking to right now. If you understood who you were talking to in this moment, you would not be asking why are your disciples breaking the Sabbath. You'd be saying, wait a minute, you don't do Sabbath the way I do, but you created it, so can you please teach us how to do it correctly? They would be approaching him not with self-assurance and arrogance that they obviously have it right, but in humility because they would understand God's superiority over them and all things. So then it goes on. Then again he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. Which, how, how detached do you need to be to be going, ooh, I hope he tries to heal this guy, because then we can pounce and destroy him. Like, what? It's so weird. So they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And then he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill. But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So, two groups of people who hate each other join forces in their mutual desire and mutual hatred for Jesus. Jesus gives them a rhetorical question. At least it was supposed to be. Is it better to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath? And it stumped them. They couldn't answer. And while, you know, maybe, maybe you're a benefit of the doubt person, you're thinking, maybe they were just stunned in silence because they were so convicted. Well, if that were true, then Jesus' response to them would not be anger towards their hardened hearts. So maybe there's a Nicodemus in there who hears that and is truly stunned to silence because he is convicted to the core And that leads him to then come question Jesus later. But the the majority of that crowd of Pharisees there don't know how to answer the question. They are silent in the midst of a rhetorical question. They're going, oh man, which is better to, to do good, but in a way that would probably break the sabbatical law, or to allow someone to continue to suffer, which is the same thing as doing harm to them, 
but then proving how good I am at following sabbatical law. So saving someone or allowing them to suffer when I can prevent it in order to prove how serious I am about the Sabbath, it's a toughie. And Jesus' response to that is anger. Everywhere in Scripture when it talks about hard-heartedness, it's not just a lack of compassion. It means a rejection of God, which ultimately always leads to a lack of compassion. But Jesus in this moment is horrified. When we find ourselves incapable of answering what is supposed to be a rhetorical question, that reveals something troubling about our heart. Jesus is angry over the rejection of God resulting in a graceless attitude towards a suffering man and that their nonsensical and self-glorifying focused on the rules takes precedent over a suffering person. And then to drive this point home, he heals the man in a way that they can't possibly accuse him of violating anything, right? What did he, what did he do? He said, open your hand. Just picture the frustration of the Pharisees, like, what did he, what did he do? What did he, he said, what did he do? He spoke. He said something. Are we allowed to talk on the Sabbath? Yeah, I'm talking right now. Yes, we're allowed to talk on the Sabbath. Did he do anything? No, he just, so what did the other guy do? He opened his hand. His hand opening. I'm like, yes, yes, you can open your hand on the Sabbath. Ah! Right? That's why they never, they never bring, that's not any of the things that they, they never accuse him of violating the Sabbath when he's on trial, right? When they finally get him on trial, nothing is mentioned of the Sabbath. Because how embarrassing is that to bring him in and be like, you violated the Sabbath. Well, what did he do? Well, he spoke. I'm pretty sure you can talk on the Sabbath. Yeah, you're right. Sorry. Like, so, so he heals them. He, he drives his point home by healing the man and doing so in a way that it doesn't break the Sabbath at all. And so their response is to say, it, 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 that's all right, we're, we're, we're going to destroy him. This is, this is an admission that it's not even ultimately about breaking the Torah law. It's about Jesus himself. They're rejecting Jesus himself for the sake of their own agenda, their own definition of religion and holiness. We are foolish if we think that we are not susceptible to this in our church. It looks very different. We don't hold secret councils in order to figure out how to physically destroy somebody anymore. The 21st century version of that is we gather on the internet and assassinate people's character and faith from the comfort of our own homes. We snipe at our brothers and sisters through blogs and articles and email forwards. We call it sharing, standing for truth and doctrine well, we're condemning in our hearts people that we have never met in person because of the graceless opinion of someone else who has also never met them before. Or we choose in our personal relationships to share only ever correction, to only ever share what someone is doing wrong or to gossip about how wrong somebody else is rather than speaking the life-giving, grace-saturated truth of the gospel over them and to other people about them because we're ultimately more concerned about being right than we are about that person experiencing Jesus. Jesus, on the other hand, sets an extraordinary example for us of giving himself for the sake of others and then he tells us to do the same. 
in, in, in Matthew's unpacking of the same, the same event, my understanding, I am not a professional. Actually, we have several professionals here, so you can verify if this is true or not. Is it typically better to gain multiple eyewitness accounts to have a more full understanding of the circumstances? Is that quiet nods? Yes. All right. That's, that's good. Um, that would ruin the rest of my message if you guys had said no. That was, I should have thought that through before I asked. Thank you for your help. Also for everything else that you do. So in Matthew, in Matthew, his account of this same interaction, it says, as they were eating and, and, and plucking the heads because they were hungry and they, they said, why are your disciples doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He said to them, have you not read what David, and he says all these things, but then uh, Matthew records a, a few more details of, of what happened from his perspective as, as an eyewitness of what's happening here. He says, have you not read in the law how the Sabbath, uh, on the Sabbath the priests of the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless, the ones who are, breaking, who are baking the bread? Like they, they are making food on the Sabbath just like these guys are making food on the Sabbath. And he says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Talking about himself. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And you would not have condemned the guiltless for the Son of Man is Lord over the Sabbath. Jesus lays out his true holiness is not found in following all the rules. It is found in following Jesus. Trusting not in what I can accomplish in all my rule following, but what he has accomplished in his perfect life and his substitutionary death and his resurrecting from the dead, believing and obeying what he has said. Jesus models That the great commandment of love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Translation, everything you have and everything that you are. And love your neighbor as yourself are inseparable and that they trump anything else that we can come up with, including even his own ceremonial law. That is extraordinary. Says the exception to even my own ceremonial law is when loving God and loving others would come in conflict with that. The priests, the priest was correct in breaking the ceremonial law to meet the the needs of David and his men. The Pharisee and the Levite were wrong for refusing to become ceremonially unclean in order to help the wounded man in the story of the Good Samaritan. And here, The Pharisees are willing to allow someone else to suffer for the sake of their own misguided definition of holiness. Jesus makes it inarguably clear that if holiness is defined by resting in Him and true holiness always results in more love of God and more love of others. If my man-made rules prevent me from actually obeying the Bible itself, that's a problem. If my definition of holiness is exclusively behavioral, it's just about what I do and doesn't ever address my heart, that is not biblical holiness. 
And if my practice of religion allows me to ignore the needs and suffering of those around me, Jesus is angry. That's what it says. His heart is grieved. If my rule following trumps loving God and loving others, what he says are the greatest of commandments. Jesus meets the broken, the hurting, the suffering, and the sinner with grace and compassion and the good news that he can and delights to heal them. And he meets our hard-heartedness and self-righteousness with grievous anger. Those who are quick to confess find grace and mercy, find him waiting with compassion. Those who are quick to complain and critique grieve the heart of Jesus. But it's essential, church, for us to remember that neither the broken nor the critical are beyond the healing of Jesus when we are willing to repent or change direction and rest in him and him alone. When Jesus heals on the Sabbath here, he's not breaking the Sabbath, he's fulfilling it. He is bringing rest to someone who has been laboring in suffering for who knows how long. Rather than forcing them to continue their burden, to carry that burden, that suffering, he relieves it from them. And every story that that Jay has unpacked so far in Mark, whenever Jesus heals a person, the person is described as being under the burden of, of pain or blindness or spiritual oppression or relational exile. And Jesus, the one who declares, come to me all who are weary and under heavy burden and I will give you rest, does exactly that. He gives them Sabbath as a gift. He relieves their burden. He gives them rest. When we know who Jesus is and we understand what he does, it changes everything. Everything. He lived the life that I should have lived and he died the death that we deserve to die and he exchanges his life for ours and then his resurrection proves that he was exactly what he, who he said he was and that, and that his death accomplished exactly what it was supposed to. And when we fully surrender to that reality and we truly encounter him, it changes everything. It changes the questions that we ask. It changes our goals and what we pursue. It changes our definition of holiness. It changes, it destroys our self-righteousness. It heals, he heals and he unites our wounded and divided hearts. He redirects our desires to align with His. He reroutes our plans that we thought were so well laid, but His are so much better. And He establishes Himself as Lord. And in dying to ourselves, we find fullness of life abundant in Him and in Him alone. Amen. With a word, He can open our gnarled hands and release our grip on these things that we are clinging so tightly to that we have convinced ourselves will save and sustain us and provide us with a more real and satisfying identity than he can. And in his grace, he says, open, open your hands. When we do, we find rest. Our burden is lifted. Today, 
it says in Hebrews, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Whether you've attended church your whole life and the Spirit is revealing to you right now that you have been trusting more in your own righteousness than you have in Jesus, or if you've never trusted Jesus before in your life, and right now, something in you is stirring and telling you this is real. That is the Holy Spirit of the living God awakening your soul to help you discern discern spiritual things. And I beg you that you would not leave here. Whichever one of those is you, if that is you this morning, I beg you do not leave this place without surrendering your head, your heart, and your hands fully to Jesus. I'm going to ask some of, the, some of the shepherds of the church to just kind of be hanging out on the side of the stage. If, if that's you this morning, I would encourage you, please come, just ask one of them to pray for you. We want to know what you're wrestling with. We want to pray for you. We're not asking anything of you. We just want to pray for you. During, I'm going to ask the, Esther and Joe to come back up here again and I'm going to celebrate our Jesus with one, one final song. And as they come up, let me pray for us. Jesus, help us to know and understand and trust that you are who you are. That we would believe that moment to moment, day to day, to believe that you are Lord of the Sabbath and everything else. That all things were created through you and for you and all things are held together in you. That you are worthy of everything we have and everything that we are because it's all a gift from you anyway. Jesus, awaken sleepy hearts. Breathe life into dead souls. Help us to know that you are God and you are good.